The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. If you made a New Year's resolution this year, and I'm not saying you did, but if you did, the statistics would not be on your side. Uh, Studies show, a a study by Forbes magazine, showed that this Sunday, actually four weeks-ish, after uh, New Year's Day, 64%, so almost two-thirds of the people making New Year's resolutions have already fallen off track. It's an amazing stat. I think it's so fascinating. But I don't think we should be so hard on ourselves. And here's why. Change, which is what a New Year's resolution is, change is really hard. Change is really hard. Changing habits, behaviors, things about ourselves, it's really hard, if not impossible. Now, on one level, it can be done. I think we've all probably uh, changed something in our lives recently, a change for the better. Uh, But it's one thing to cut the habit of, say, like watching too much Netflix, right? Perhaps that's something that we've flagged and worked on and overcome. Maybe maybe you've done that. Congratulations. But it's a whole other level to say, quit smoking. In the same way, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to eat less potato chips, but it's another thing to become more patient. Are you tracking with me? You feel like that's true? And yet, I don't think it's absurd for me to, to guess that if I sat down with each one of you here this morning, and we had a real deep heart-to-heart, that there wasn't some things, some deep things, in your life that you know you need to change. Maybe you're too quick to speak and slower to listen, and it gets in the way of of you making new friends or your relationships flourishing. You're always burning bridges. Maybe you tell lies, just little small lies, or you are really good at articulating things in such a way that it's the truth, but it's the truth that really helps you move your agenda forward. And then, you know, that leads to you can't really own up to the mistakes you make. You feel like you always have to be saving face, saving your reputation. Or maybe you've had to delete the internet history over and over and over again, and you just, you can't, you can't do it. You can't change. Now, the reason why I say this is because we've all got stuff. And if we dig, we each will find it. We'll each be able to see that there are things in our lives that we need to change. Things that are getting in the way of us living our lives to our fullest potential, but also things that get in the way of us and God. Two observations I want to make this morning. The first is that our culture offers us almost no help in change. Uh, the typical answer you might get when, when we, you know, uh, admit to having problems or things that we'd like to change is, you know, something like this. Someone will say, yes, but everyone has their faults. So don't be too hard on yourself. Which is true, but unhelpful if you want to change. Or the other answer is, you've got your problems and I've got mine. So we'll just kind of call it a draw. Again, a 
kind of unhelpful. Now, the other thing is that eventually if we do mess up or do make the wrong mistake or if we have the wrong problem that we can actually get canceled, that culture can simply write us off as not being worth it. I've talked about this before. There's no grace. There's no room for forgiveness. And the second observation is that the Bible has a word for this, our problems. It's called sin. Sin is anything that falls short of God's will and God's glory. That's how the Bible talks about sin. Anything that goes against God's will and falls short of his glory. And sin gets in the way of us and God. Sin gets in the way of us living up to our true created potential. Sin gets in the way of us being in a perfect relationship with God. Sin gets in the way of everything. And Jesus made sin accessible to us when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Because what Jesus did was he took these things that were in the Mosaic Law, say, do not murder. And he did not allow us to leave it at that. He kept on digging, he kept on digging, he kept on digging. And he summed up murder. He says what, what happens before you, before you murder somebody is you actually start, it starts with anger. And so the sin underneath murder is really anger. And the reason why this is, you know, so pointed is because we cannot read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and his ethical teaching without feeling the weight of it. Because we all have problems. But the good news for us in the gospel is that Jesus doesn't leave us in our problems. He deals with them. Right? He took on our sin. Something I like to say is that Jesus lived the life you should have. He lived up to your created potential and died the death you deserve. The punishment that was for you was laid upon him. Therefore, we can have life in him. We can sit here and I can say to you at the assurance of pardon, your sin is forgiven. You can live a renewed life. Why? Because Jesus covered it on the cross. And in him, we are made right. We can come before God as justified. But the Bible also gives us deep resources to change this behavior, not just to be forgiven of it, to change. And so we can do something. We have resources that are better than our culture that says, okay, we can just ignore the problems or sweep them under the rug. Christians have the ability to change deep, deep, deep problems with us. And it comes through transformative worship. The two points I want to make this morning, and you may be wondering why I have this backpack on. I will get to it. I promise. The two points are transformative worship and transformed by worship. Okay, so first, transformative worship. For us to change, we have to engage in worship and engage in different ways. Uh, now, if you have a good memory, you may remember back to the beginning of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent, I preached a sermon on worship. And that's why I called this Worship Part 2. And in that sermon, I essentially said, we've all— we. As a human beings, we all worship. We can't not worship. The only choice we get is what to worship. The only choice we get is what to worship. And worship is a, is a fun, since it's a fundamentally core experience of being human, it matters deeply what we worship. What we worship will either make it or break it in our lives. I shared that uh, incredible quote by David Foster Wallace where he points to the different things. He said, if you worship money, it's going to make you more greedy. If you worship your beauty, 
It's going to make you feel ugly. If you, worship has this tendency of bringing out the worst in us unless we worship the right thing. And worship in Jesus makes it for us because it's not based on our ability to perform or to live up to a standard. It's based on grace. But I don't think I pushed it far enough. I don't think I pushed that sermon far enough because it's not just about who or what we worship that makes it or breaks it for us. It's how we actually engage in worship that, that goes into this, that, that makes it or breaks it for us. Now, on my back, I have with me uh, the swim bag that I bring to the, to the pool every time I go swimming. Um, and this is the, the reason why I bring a backpack like this is because I've learned a very crucial lesson when it comes to swimming. Swimming is really hard. Now, I went through uh, Don't Drown Lessons 1, 2, and 3 when I was a little kid, and so I can confidently pass a swim test, but then I got into the water and started swimming lengths and thought that, you know, if I just devote myself to this, if I just put in the time, if I just show up at the pool, swim my 2,000 meters three times a week, I'm going to get really fast, and then eventually I'll be able to challenge Michael Phelps for the Olympic gold medal, and, and after about three months of trying really, really hard, the 60-year-old women in the pool were still swimming faster than me. And that, is, that was a really tough pill for me to swallow. So I went back to the drawing book. I read some books. I watched some YouTube videos. And I discovered that being devoted to swimming, right, we talked about this um, passage in Acts as the, 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 the Christians were devoted being devoted to worship or being devoted to swimming isn't the only thing that matters. We need to be engaged in the right disciplines. We need to bring our whole selves into the right disciplines. So let me show you what sort of disciplines I learned that I had to do in order to become faster at swimming. So... It turned out that my birthday was coming up, so I put a whole bunch of these swim tools on my birthday list. So, um, the snorkel that I have on my head, maybe you can't hear me if I have that in. The snorkel that I have on my head allows me to isolate my stroke so I can put my head in the water and just focus on the stroke without worrying about breathing, okay? These paddles that I have that I put on my hands are designed in a special way that if I put my hand in at the wrong angle, it goes all wobbly. And so it helps me isolate the entry and the catch so that I can learn to pull down in the right ways, okay? This handy-dandy old bike tire inner tube, I put between my legs so that I can't kick, so that I feel like I'm going to drown. But it, what it does is it helps me to keep my legs at the surface so I, can, so I can learn how to engage my core and go flatter along the surface of the water, okay? But what I want you to see here is that each of these tools that I have allows me to focus on a different part of my swim stroke. And by breaking it down and focusing on it in the right way, my swimming becomes transformed. 
I get to swim faster. And so what, it, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at by showing you these swim tools is exactly what the apostles did and the, the early Christians, is they did not just uh, worship. They were engaged in specific disciplines of worship that changed their behavior. What were they? Well, we can see it in verse 42. Okay? In verse 42, it tells us that they were uh, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, why these things? Well, let's look at teaching first. The first thing we can see is that um, they listened to instruction. They were doing exactly the thing that Jesus told them to do, which in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, what's the next word? Teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded. So part of their worship was getting instruction, being taught what it looks like to obey and follow Jesus. This would have likely included similar things to what we hear on a Sunday morning, right? So ethical teaching about what it means to follow Jesus. What are his laws? What are his commands? Practical teaching about how this changes our lives. All grounded in the central promise that Jesus Christ has died for our sin and has risen to life that gives us hope. Right? They listened to these teachers in order to be challenged by them in order that they could grow. And so the first question that we have to ask ourselves is what role does teaching play in my Christian life? Not only do I show up on Sunday morning and hear a sermon, how do I begin to implement that into my life? What role does that teaching play? Do I find myself going back to it time and time again? Do I see teaching as a way in which I will change? To fellowship and breaking of bread. The, the word that's used for fellowship is koinonia, which if we were to translate that quite literally, it would be sharing in common. Now, interestingly enough, this was not a word that was often used in the book of Acts or in Luke's writings. And this was probably because it is a very strong word. It's often used in uh, the ancient times to refer to the type of bond that we see in a marriage the sharing in common, which is pretty intense when you see it used to describe a Christian community. It's incredibly radical, actually. Now, but here's the most amazing part of the koinonia, the sharing in life in common that they had. Um, we noticed from the end of this passage that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, meaning that this community was growing in, in, in large proportions early on. And uh, one uh, commentator made this incredible observation about how that connects to koinonia. He says this, Unlike Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or Christianity, right from the beginning, Christianity attracted people from all across spectrums in society. So they drew from the, the lowly, the unlearned, the working class. Um, think about in the Bible, you know, Onesimus, the, the, the slave, the servant in that, the book Philemon. 
But they also developed um, a philosophy, Christians did, a philosophy, an ethic that commanded the respect of many of the cultural elites. You know, think of Philemon. He's a cultural elite. Or we can think of other people in, in the Bible who were um, interested in Christianity and who were from the upper class. Christianity, goes on, was for both males and females. We think of Lydia in the book of Acts, right? She was a, a merchant. She was very wealthy. She was a woman, and she was attracted to Christianity. They drew from the rich and the poor, Right, so we think of Joseph of Arimathea. He funded the uh, tomb for Jesus. He was an incredibly wealthy man. And why is this important? Because Christianity is drawing from all sorts of classes, all sorts of—it's cutting across almost every single cultural barrier and bringing people together in an intense, common relationship. Now, can we feel the challenge that we have as a community living in the 21st century— in Hamilton, with the same calling. That means we have to ask ourselves, who do we spend time with? Is it only people who think like me, and who talk like me, and who look like me? If it is, I would say we're missing something. The early church knew right from the get-go that this was something that was going to lead them to be in uncomfortable social situations. But they remembered that what brought them together, what, what the glue that their koinonia was based on, was none of those factors but was the risen Jesus Christ. That's the thing in common. That's what they gathered around. The last thing they devoted themselves was to prayer. Does that mean that they simply prayed at mealtimes or before bed? Not quite. Uh, maybe you remember the series that we did on the Lord's Prayer last summer or two summers ago. I can't quite remember. But we compared and contrasted what we called default prayer with kingdom prayer. And default prayer was the uh, outside-in prayer. Lord, give me. Lord, make me. Lord, I want. And we, we saw how Jesus taught prayer from inside out. Thy will be done. Right? It goes from, um, it, it invites our hearts to be transformed by prayer. It's about moving away from ourselves and into a deeper dependence on and alignment with God's will and character. And this formed the early church and their prayer because right from the get-go, they sought God's will and direction above their own. And so what, what do we see here? We see with, with instruction, with koinonia, with the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer, that the early church had worship disciplines that led to their transformation. They were engaged in different ways. It was a whole body experience. I didn't get into it, but they also, they sang praises to God when they were together. And so they worshipped with their minds, they worshipped with their voices, they worshipped with their hearts, they worshipped with their emotions. Now the question for us is, how are we engaged in these worship disciplines? Are we seeing ourselves in transformative worship, which is all of these things? Why or why not? And so this is my second point now, transformed by worship. Because here's the thing. We can get by without church. 
The pandemic taught us this, didn't it? It can be very convenient for us to take in church from the comfy couch, from the TV or the iPad. And I've got to experience this too. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why? What is going on here? Why, are we, why is this different than being here on a Sunday morning, sitting in the pews? And I know we have to be careful about when we talk about in-person and on- online because there's people who would love to be sitting in this room right now where it's just not a wise decision for them at this point. And so I don't want to make a, you know, a, a claim that um, you know, if, you're, if you're not able to be here that you're somehow less than or, or not good enough or whatever, but we have to see that if we think worship is just about taking in something on a Sunday morning, we've missed it. We've missed it. Because worship, by its definition, is about giving worth to someone or something. It is about giving ourselves away. It's, it's not at all about us. The way that you know you're worshiping in the right way, in a transformative way, is when you actually start to feel uncomfortable about your life. Worship is kind of like putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. The problems we talked about earlier, yeah, when we're worshiping correctly, we're going to feel the conviction of the problems in our lives. We will be bothered by these things with a holy bothering. On the one hand, transformative worship says, gosh, I don't measure up. And then the very next second says, and yet I'm forgiven and loved in Jesus Christ. Both those things go into it. But often we just float through life. We just show up on Sunday because it's what we've always done. And we get used to it. And we get complacent. And over time we forget the life-changing reality that Jesus is. It's like this. Imagine that you were given a piece of art from your grandparents. And you knew it was something that was important to them. And, you know, it was handed down to you. And so you just, you put it up on your wall because it was nice. And because you liked the look of it. And it reminded you of them. But you put it in your kitchen. Right? And then it just, it just kind of hung there for many years. And as your kids grew up, you know, there, there was times when you would have to, you know, wipe the spaghetti sauce off of the painting because the spoon was flung out of the bowl that had the spaghetti in it. And it was okay because it was just that painting. And it wasn't, you know, it was important to you, but it wasn't something that was central in your life. And then one day you had a, a friend that came over, a new friend. And this friend knew a little bit more about art than you. And they looked at this painting with a little bit of a confused look on their face. And they said, you know, this artist that painted this, it's not a nobody. So you should probably get somebody to look at it. And so you don't know anything about art. You brought it into, and I don't know anything about art, so I'm going to say the person who knows a lot about art. You bring it to the person who knows a lot about art, and and they, they see it, And they look at it, and they go to their computer, and they start typing. And then they look at it again, and they start typing again. And then they they go on the phone, and they're talking to somebody else in a kind of a hushed voice. And and you're just kind of in the corner wondering what's going on. And then they, they go back, and they type something else on the computer, and then they come to you, and their face is white. And they look at you, and they say, do you know what this is? No. This is an ancient artifact. 
a painting worth millions of dollars that has spaghetti stains on it. <laughs> what happens in that moment, right? Your life is different. Everything about your life is different. You are so wealthy. But not because you gained anything that you didn't have before. I mean, that painting has been with you for years and years and years. You just didn't know it. Friends, that can happen to Jesus. What drove the early church into transformative worship was because they knew that they had something that was of infinite value, that gave them infinite resources, that was of infinite importance in their life, and that drove them into worship in a different way. Ask yourself, is Jesus that for me? Is he in the rightful place in my life right now? If we think about what he has done for us, that he is, has given us our life back, he's given us the opportunity to be in relationship with him, that we can change, that we can grow, that we can be transformed if we just devote ourselves more to him. If I look at... Ask yourself this, honestly. If you looked at what you spend the most amount of time and intentionality doing, what would that say about your life and what you worship? And then think about the practices. How am I engaged in worship? Of the list which we went through, the teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, the prayer, what do you need to pay attention to right now at the moment? Transformative worship. Some of us need to reflect on this, perhaps more intentionally. How am I engaged in the worship disciplines of the church? C.S. Lewis has this incredible quote that I'm going to end with. He says, you know, often it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink, and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. As Christians, we ought to be easily pleased by the grace and the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you in this time of worship, as we recognize that it is what you have uh, made us for, we do confess that we don't often give it the time, the devotion, the engagement that it requires. Lord, help us as we seek to grow as a church and as people that we would see the call to, to worship you, the call to be transformed, coming to be f the most important thing in our lives. God, give us uh, the, your Holy Spirit that we need to work in our hearts to convict us and to compel us forward. And we pray that you would be our, our ever-present help in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.